Ladies and gentlemen, hello, and thanks for joining us on the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and the release date for today's podcast is Tuesday, March the 3rd, 2015, which just so happens to be World Wildlife Day. And in commemoration of that day, I'm joined in the studio by our conservation correspondent, Cecile Sarabia. Thank you. Welcome back to the Primate Cast. And so how are we going to celebrate this, uh, this day here today on the Primate Cast? So we are going to celebrate it with an interview with the PALF coordinator, Naftali Honig. PALF, which is the project for the application of law for fauna. Mm -hmm. Which is very relevant to this year's focus, or you could call it a theme for World Wildlife Day, uh, yeah. which is getting serious about wildlife crime. Yeah, exactly. In listening to this interview, I was thinking about... Um, kind of this informal list that I made of uh, what conservation actually is. So we, you have in the beginning identification, monitoring of a problem, um, awareness raising in the population, local and international, which you know takes a lot of campaigning and fundraising. And of course, that should translate in the end into some kind of policy. But of course, the policy needs to be enforced. And so the enforcement is usually, um, well, I shouldn't say last on everybody's minds, but it's certainly something that, at least in the international community, we talk about perhaps the least. Yeah, it's an aspect that we don't hear that much in the media, that's right. And probably one of the most difficult things mm -hmm. to implement mm -hmm. in conservation. And so this is something that's talked about a lot in this interview. Yeah, because so I heard about Naftali Honig the first time back in 2010 when I was uh, volunteering for an NGO called uh, HELP Congo. And um, HELP stands for Ecological Habitat and Freedom of Primates. It's based in the Conquatiduli Reserve in Congo, Brazzaville. And back then, um, so when I arrived, Naftali already left. He has left to join this law enforcement group, PALF, in the capital, in Brazzaville. But I heard a lot about this uh, previous camp manager and what he has done. So I got interested in um, his transition because I think it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, so he talks in this interview at the beginning about his time at HELP and how he was actually studying the, the chimpanzees there. So yeah, uh, watching the, the, forest. Yeah, the integration <laughs> after being reintroduced yeah. um, as a budding primatologist. And of course, in our uh, world as well, there were quite a f in addition to yourself, quite a few other people we know that have come through the HELP system. Yeah, so I think last, last summer we interviewed Miles Woodruff. Uh, who is now doing his PhD at Durham University. We interviewed him in the conservation part of the IPS podcast. Right, number, number 27. Yeah. And he was also a previous um, volunteer at Help Congo. In addition to that, um, another primatologist, um, Sabrina Kriev, who is um, working at the Natural History Museum in Paris, has also been uh, volunteering at Help Congo. And Dr. Benoit Goussens, who is now the manager of Danao Girang um, Field Center in Borneo, Malaysia. Yeah, and somebody who will be in an upcoming podcast when we have a focus on Sabah. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of people coming through there. And um, so from he left help and he'll talk about his, his activities yeah. going forward. So just to talk a little bit about some of the maybe interesting, really interesting, well, the whole interview is interesting, but some of the things that stood out to me, um, of course, this idea of enforcement and you know, that's something that we can kind of cross-link to other podcasts we've done recently at the Student Conference in Conservation Science in um, Brisbane. When you spoke with Yufang Gao, he talked about um, how China has really strict policy and maybe good policy about the ivory trade, and yet it's very rarely enforced. Yeah, yeah. so Yufang, he's doing his PhD at Yale University in the US, but he, and he's investigating the Chinese ivory trade. 
And he's, he's told, yeah, it's con- completely linked to this interview as well. It was last Thursday, actually, the Chinese government took the decision to ban the import of ivory into China for one year in order to increase um, elephant population, which is at uh, its lowest now. Mm-hmm. Good initiative, but there are also lots of criticism about this decision. Sure. But yeah, yeah, as always, I mean, it comes in baby steps. Um, But Naftali does talk quite a bit about um, their involvement with uh, with Chinese activities in Congo and um, export of of ivory as well. But of course, China is not the only infringing country. In in fact, where we are now, Japan is maybe the second. Yeah, the second biggest importer. Yeah, yeah. And so we that we can go back to podcast number 14 when we spoke with Tomoaki Nishihara about his involvement in um, conservation and with the forest elephants in Central Africa as well, and trying to raise awareness in Japan about this issue because people you know, don't necessarily think about it or, or know what's going on. Okay, and so another interesting thing that Naftali mentions um, is how we, we can't continue monitoring animals into extinction. Yeah, same, same, almost the same sentence that I heard um, yeah, a few weeks ago back at the Student Conference on Conservation Science at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, where the keynote speaker, one of the keynote speaker, Hugh Pussingham, um, said that we we need to, there, there is a trade-off and we cannot monitor um, animals endlessly. We need to we need to know what is our limit in order to make effective decisions. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we need to take action before we have mm-hmm. the full mm-hmm. amount of information because it could otherwise be well too late. Yeah, and so that that kind of goes into one of the the final talking points you guys had with Naftali, which was when he talked about how it would be great to see um, more graduate students, particularly taking on projects that deal more specifically with some of these practical issues. So, for example, really mon- not just monitoring trafficking, but also coming up with good solutions for investigations um, and things to mitigate what's going on there on the ground. Yeah, it was quite interesting because we ended up. Um, talking actually informally at the end of this podcast about um, what I was telling him that I'm, I'm at the start of my PhD and um, yeah he was he sees the future of, of conservation sciences like less focus on uh, the behavior of the animals mm-hmm. but maybe more um, yeah, interdisciplinary and mm-hmm. investigating different aspects of uh, wildlife trade for example yeah okay so we might as well get right into this interview. But just before we do, I want to mention this interview was conducted on Skype by Cecile with Naftali. And you'll notice there's a little bit of background noise at certain points. So we apologize for that. But otherwise, I hope everyone enjoys the interview. So my name is Naftali Honig, and I'm the coordinator of PALF and the director of Eagle Network. PALF stands for Projet d'appui à l'application de la loi sur la faune sauvage, and in English, Project for the Application of Law for Fauna, which is based in Congo, Brazzaville. And the Eagle Networks, Eagle stands for Eco-Activist for Governance and Law Enforcement, which is now in 10 countries across Africa. We will come back to PALF and the Eagle Networks in a minute. But before that, so Naftali, you are now based in the Congo, but where do you come from originally? Originally, I'm from the, from the US, I'm from New York, but um, I moved to Congo in 2008 and I started to live in the forest. Yeah. Um, so uh, and did some uh, primate research on on chimpanzees mostly, uh, and post release monitoring specifically at help at the at a, at 
the only chimpanzee sanctuary that I know in Africa that has no fences and um, a really great place to kind of get an introduction to the, the Congolese rainforest. Um, and so, yeah, from there, uh, I just fell in love with it. And that, that's what kind of got me into the cities working on PALF later on. Okay. How long did you stay in the, in the Congo for volunteering with uh, Help Congo? Uh, I mean, I started as a volunteer just for a few months and then I got a job there. So I ran the post-release monitoring camp mm -hmm. in a, a part of the forest called the Triangle. And mm -hmm. so I worked there for about a year. And um, that was just a really good experience as an introduction to the rainforest because I was tracking chimpanzees for the job. But then, you know, that's six or seven hours a day. And then after that, I could go out and, you know, just do my own thing and go and track gorilla or, or elephant and just kind of watch them. And so it was a really, really good experience. In fact, just this morning, I was looking at a a botany book and remembering some of the plants and stuff. So it's a very, very great experience and a good set of memories. Mm -hmm. And so did you, after this experience, did you go back to the US or so what did you do after this experience? No, I went directly from there to Brazzaville, the capital of Congo. And I, um, I had to go to a market and buy myself some nice clothes quickly so that I could meet two of my two my two closest colleagues for some meetings in a, in the Ministry of Forestry and it was the first time I did something like that mm -hmm. but um but yeah anyway. we had that and that was the beginning of PALF so PALF is a kind of it's a law enforcement group and so jumping from the forest of uh, the triangle to Brazzaville I mean how this did this experience with Help Congo inspired you to turn into conservation activism? So there's only so much you can do within the forest and you know sometimes the logical evolution is that uh, you move out and, and as much as I would rather be there every day uh, there is a need you know to protect more animals outside of the forest than inside of the forest. Inside the forest we were protecting the chimpanzees that were released and You know, it's helpful to be on a site because it will deter poachers from coming by that site. But I realized having having worked a little bit with um, with uh, Laga in Cameroon and and coming to Brazzaville and seeing what PALF was going to be, I realized what the important how, how much bigger of a scale you can work on um, considering how bad the problem of poaching is in Congo. And so Um, Laga is the last great ape organization, and if I, in my understanding, so it's the the model that kind of created or replicated PALF, and then later on other other models. So, what can you tell yeah, us a bit correct. more about uh, what uh, and where uh, Laga, PALF, and the Eagle Eagle Networks uh, are? So Ophir Drury started Laga in about 2003, and he developed it as a model to fight wildlife crime by fighting corruption. So, and he wanted to bring about a more of an activist spirit because he saw major problems with the kind of conservation industry in Central Africa. So he started building this model, and it pretty much came about um, and developed from there. And you know, and by by 2008, he was starting to move it. You know, to think about how he how he could move this model into other parts of Africa, because obviously the way that wildlife traffickers function is 
they choose the weakest link. So, you know, they'll choose the path of least resistance and go that way. So you can't just operate in one country. You have to operate and use this model in as many countries as it's applicable, which is most of many of the countries in Africa and in many, many other parts of the world as well. Corruption is intimately linked with wildlife trade. So basically from there, he, um, so as this project expanded, the notion of this um, activist NGO that was going to take young legal experts and young investigators and have them trying to change the system started to be applied in Congo and then uh, from Congo then the next replication was in Central African Republic then in Gabon and then for the first time in 2012 in West Africa in Guinea Conakry and then you know, it just continued to expand throughout West Africa. Now it's starting in East Africa as well. And so to standardize this and keep the, you know, keep the integrity of our model, we formalized it. And, uh, and that's how Eagle Network was founded. And so now we, we are pretty strict about accepting member projects, but, but we're, you know, we're training a lot of people and, um, and working towards building a bigger network slowly, but surely. Mm -hmm. So, and, I see sometimes popping up on, on the internet, on social media, so that traffickers have been arrested. It seems to be a pretty big part of, of your job. So which methods do you use to, um, to investigate or to enforce uh, law in terms of uh, wildlife crime? So we have investigators that infiltrate wildlife networks. We also have a sniffer dog team and the sniffer dogs are um, you know sometimes going to control posts, sometimes working on intelligence-led operations, where they will go um, and detect illegal wildlife products, um, and the investigators as well are doing the same thing by infiltrating those networks. Then we work with Congolese police forces, and those police forces have the power to arrest. Of course, we don't, um, and the, those police forces then uh, do sting operations, which we're. Um, we're helping out with and then um, uh, and then our team of legal experts are effectively babysitting the cases and they're following it from that operation uh, through when the when the traffickers are first taken into custody to all the way through the trial all the way to the point where the traffickers are sentenced and even beyond uh, while the trafficker is serving jail time because at every single moment along the way there's a risk for corruption so the corruption can come about you know, from right at the operation and someone can offer a bribe. We just had it the other day where a Chinese uh, pangolin scale trafficker, he was arrested and two hours later a, f a colleague of his comes by with $2,000 bribe. Um, so you can imagine this is a tempting thing in a, in a, in a middle income country. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not the, um, it's not the easiest thing for a lot of guards to refuse, but of course it was refused in, in this instance and mm -hmm. and because uh, our team was there, our team is watching the whole time. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, now we have um, a case against the pangolin trafficker, but we also have a case against the guy offering the bribe. And that, you mm. know, that type of instance can happen at every moment. Uh, at the same time, there's just a trafficker that was sentenced to a year in prison, an ivory trafficker foreign ivory trafficker in northern Congo and he, despite his one-year sentence we just found out he, he he was able to escape after three months so we're trying to find out whether he was who was it freeing him and mm. then we'll try and get him back in jail mm. 
Very interesting. So what were the main outcomes so far? So after years working on, on law enforcement, what like what can you say now? Um, how did it improve? Yeah, we have a very high, much increased rate of arrests. So we got um, yeah, we brought about forty one different arrests in in two thousand and fourteen, forty one, forty two actually, mm -hmm. and uh, and. And we also uh, facilitated the legal follow-up of a lot of other cases. So, you know, uh, and some of those cases failed and some of them succeeded. And so we have a tough time with that much increased rate of arrest. Um, so the risk of being arrested has obviously increased a lot in Congo. Um, the risk of being prosecuted, we're still working a lot on because that varies a lot from year to year depending on who the prosecutors are, who the judges are, and how the level of corruption is, uh, you know, of those individuals. And so um, right now, you know, we had a bit of a downtime, but now we're starting to have a, an uptime again. And so we've recently had some, some good sentences in you know, a number of courts in Congo. So things are starting to, to shape up again. Mm -hmm. So for and then we use the and then we work with the we work with the media so that the media uh, we give press releases of course every time uh, every time there's a strong sentence in order to inform the public of the increased wildlife law enforcement in Congo. So PALF arrests criminals once they have already killed, stealed, and trafficked. So which kind of impact does it make? Uh, do you still consider your work as preventive? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, well, actually, it is very preventative because, mm -hmm. firstly, sometimes we, well, in addition to, to products like ivory or, or leopard skins, we also sometimes in the operations ha uh, see, see ammunition. So if ammunition is seized, that was ammunition that was going to go and hunt uh, and kill animals. Mm -hmm. so, so in that sense, it's preventative. And also, it's important to know that... Um, traffickers are organized criminals they're doing this for business so you need to catch them with something you can't just accuse somebody and say oh this person is doing this and I don't have any proof but I'm accusing him so when you catch a trafficker who is an organized criminal with a wildlife product he is going to do it again this is organized business they're making a lot of money off this stuff so if you seize you know let's say you catch a poacher with ivory Um, it's extremely sad, of course, that the ivory is the result of a dead elephant. And it's really, really sad for us that we couldn't save that individual elephant. But at the same time, it's so lucrative these days that this guy would have sold that ivory otherwise and gone right back to the forest and killed more elephants. Um, and that's, that's in, the, in the instance of poachers. But part of the problem today is that we kind of have a paradigm where we're looking at the poacher issue as if, uh, you know, as if poachers are the real problem. But actually, poachers are pushed by large-scale demand coming from much more organized traffickers. And if you think about the same uh, thing that I'm just explaining with regards to traffickers, traffickers are often responsible for, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 kilos every month of ivory. So some of this stuff is going out in such high volumes that we're talking about dozens of elephants per month. So as soon as an ivory trafficker is put in jail, the preventative value is enormous because he might be, uh, you know, you know, when I when I see a, we have one ivory trafficker who's in jail right now in Brazzaville for the second time, and every day that this guy is spending in jail, there are probably elephants being saved and that are living up in in Congo, 
you know, peaceful lives because this guy is not employing poachers to go out and hunt them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, the idea of fighting crime in the first place is, you know, inherently preventative because the idea is that you're adding consequence to the equation and this consequence is what ultimately deters people from doing the crimes in the first place. How does um, the life, the everyday life of, uh, of an activist like you looks like? So we have multiple departments, so there's many different angles of the project that we're working on on every day. But, you know, for example, yesterday I'm working on some investigations. We're coming up with some new ideas, but we're also executing some of the investigations. So we're sending some people out into the field. We have people in various areas of the country. Um, And then, uh, you know, so, yeah, so they're very different investigations. You know, an investigation in the city is very different than than an investigation in a logging town, for instance. Um, but we, you know, we'll have them in various areas of the country. And then at the same time, we're working on some media issues. So we're working on general coverage, media coverage of, our, of trials and cases that we're following, but also some kind of you know, communication responses to some really bad uh, instances of um, the lack of application of wildlife law that we've seen recently. For example, um, we were very disappointed the other day as we were in court and somebody and a court official was actually saying that Chinese uh, traffickers uh, should be allowed to take home what he called a souvenir of ivory, which is of course illegal under international law. So not only Congolese law, but it's illegal under international law as well. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's so ridiculous and, and mm-hmm. sad to hear this for us that we have to have some sort of a communication response. So we were working on that. Um, at the same time, we're obviously working on legal follow-up. So, you know, we have some very difficult cases uh, ranging from trying to obtain arrest warrants for people who have escaped to preparing for a trial that we have tomorrow um, in northern Congo. And we have some big trials coming up in early March. So preparing legal strategies, communicating with lawyers. Um, so, yeah, so all of these types of things. Sometimes we have to do, uh, you know, the weekend and there was a... Uh, some destruction of um, of bushmeat that was uh, illegally trafficked and seized. So, you know, so we have to destroy some of the the bushmeat and and some of the animals which are live will then be released. You know, so these types of things. Mm-hmm. So it it makes me think of um, w- what is the the reaction of the Congolese toward toward the job you are doing. So it's not generalized. There are obviously a whole variety of reactions. Um, in the whole country, uh, obviously traffickers don't like it. So people who are involved in the trade are very against it. Some people who are involved in other types of corruption are are very um, uh, hesitant to to like the project. But then you know we get interesting things. Like for example, some bushmeat was seized off of an authority who um, who then came. Uh, and signed his charge sheet, so he he admitted what he did wrong. It was a small infraction, so he wasn't arrested. It was just um, it was partially protected species, and so he was uh, it wasn't the the kind of most endangered species in Congo. And he he signed his charge sheet, and he apologized, and he actually went to some of the other authorities in the area and told them, you know, how important that work was. So sometimes we get you know good good signs like that. And other times we get signs like this judge talking about Chinese guys taking out ivory souvenirs, you mm-hmm. know, who are completely living in the past or something. And 
you know, it's almost like they live in a bubble and they don't know what's what's going on outside of their mm-hmm. their city. But um, obviously, you know, with uh, the increase in social media, increases in in just general globalization, you know, everybody is much more interconnected these days. So people understand that it's a you know, it's a global issue that's protect, protecting wildlife is really not just a Congolese issue, but it's a global issue. Mm-hmm. And of course, I can't leave out our team and many other conservationists in Congo who are very passionate about wildlife, uh, you know, law enforcement, but also just in general about conservation. Just in that botany book that I was reading this morning, it was exciting to me f- to see that, yeah, there are foreign botanists that come in. But there are also lots and lots of Congolese botanists that are super interested in, in um, you know, in nature. And of course, there are there are many people that are that are interested in these things, even though the exposure is probably less than you know in some other parts of the world. Those things change over time, and so you know people have more access to the outside world than they did 30 or 40 years ago. So people see nature shows. People have the opportunities that that maybe you know I myself had to be exposed to wildlife and that that you know that that raises a new generation yeah yeah and i think that what is great about PALF is that you also employ uh, local people so yeah right of course yeah. we we put a high a very big focus on that because mm-hmm. for me i don't believe that actually anything will change over the next 20 or 30 years unless there are congolese activists that are determined to protect their own wildlife You know, mm-hmm. foreigners can always come in and advise, and and you know, many foreigners will will be passionate about this, these issues. But uh, ultimately, you know, these you know these animals are living in the Congo, and so this is you know something that needs to be, you know, strongly strongly participated in by Congolese people. Mm-hmm. So, how do you think we can help? I mean, not necessarily like any any random people, but also, for example, conservation scientists or scientists in general. Mm-hmm. So science, yeah, science, the, 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 the value of conservation biology is changing a lot in conservation today. So, you know, in the past, it was, it was very interesting to, to do behavioral studies and all these things. But these days, science is changing a lot. And the, and the, You know, for example, ivory poaching has become so bad at this point that the value of studying an elephant's behavior, as interesting as it is, has become lower and lower. And, you know, the scientific value, you know, in the forest has been oriented more and more towards understanding these declines of populations. So sometimes science, you know, nowadays, for example, the most important study that's happening is studies that are happening are studying the population declines of these animals so that we see how dr- how drastic the situation is and how rapidly they're moving towards extinction um but that said you know i'm from a biology background as well and i stopped that because um i realized that you can't monitor an animal into extinction you can't watch while an animal is just disappearing off the face of the planet and you have to do something about it. So, you know, I would say this not just for conservation biologists, but for anybody who is interested in, in wildlife conservation to just know that something has to be done. So I'm talking about thinking of creative solutions and attacking them and just going for it instead of 
instead of sitting back and, and thinking that, that, that we're you know, th almost passively assuming that this is just the way of the world. There's definitely something that can be done and it certainly will not change unless people do that. Yeah, yeah I completely agree with that. And, and it's funny because I just come back from a student conference on conservation science that was held uh, at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And uh, the keynote speaker and the, the founder actually of this conference, uh, Hugh Pussingham, he, yeah, he mentioned the same that we cannot monitor, monitor uh, endlessly, and that um, it's not variable. So at some points we have to make, as a scientist, we have to make something that uh, policymakers can um, can actually take decisions out out of uh, our research. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to be understood, you know, everything from the demand side to the supply side, but also just the general organization of criminal networks. Yeah. So to maybe to conclude, how do you see the future of uh, PALF and maybe the, the Eagle Network in the next coming years? Uh, for PALF, I see an expansion of our sniffer dog team. I see... Uh, an expansion of our investigations and, you know, always adapting and having new techniques. And I see an expansion of our legal follow-up to, to really, really make sure that we can get corrupt officials prosecuted because um, without that, we're not adding that layer of consequence for some of the most involved people in the criminal networks. So, um, You know, I see just a, a growth where we can attack every issue harder than we've been attacking it now. And for Eagle Network, I see the same thing. Um, and uh, reinforcing the capacity of you know, smaller NGOs operating across Africa with the same vision who see uh, the importance of these, um, of these, uh, these aspects. And how do you see the future of conservation research? I just offered a, a colleague of mine an opportunity to do a master's because he wanted to do a master's. So I suggested, why don't you do a master's on law, on, on a specific aspect of law enforcement, you know, of wildlife law enforcement? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, over time, you know, you know, of course, people are going to want to get degrees for themselves and also for their careers and, you know, mm -hmm. to, to be able to ha make sure they have good jobs and stuff. So over time, you know, the, the paradigm is going to shift. You know, it used to be that you, if you wanted to be in conservation, you probably needed a PhD and, mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't know how many fruits elephants eat or something like that, but that's becoming less and less relevant. Um, and it's super interesting, you know, and I say this with all my heart that I wish that that was what conservation was about. But unfortunately, we can't, you know, as you said, we can't monitor these things until they're extinct. And... Um, And so we really need to, to think about, you know, redefining our own field. And, you know, I, I, I met a guy who is a biologist, you know, uh, he's originally a biologist in Indonesia. And I, and I found out that he is now doing a master's in criminology, which is very interesting. So those types of things are, you know, that's the type of thing that maybe in the future, you know, you know a wildlife conservationist is not going to do a PhD about, you know, how many nests chimpanzees or gorillas make, but maybe they will do a, a PhD on, on how to use sniffer dogs to detect pangolin scales or how to use them to detect live chimps or something like that in an airport, you know? 
Yeah, so those things are things to think about, you know, especially as you embark on your PhD, you can think, you know, whether you want to do it in that sense or whether you want to do it in something else. I mean, for example, for great ape conservation in Central Africa, probably a huge, the biggest concern is the development of unsustainable logging and palm oil. Mm -hmm. So those types of issues become more important to do research on than the actual chimps themselves because you end up realizing that without you know, knowing and being able to block those, that destruction, you're going to have a loss of great apes. Mm. Do whatever you have to do to make sure that you fully, fully fall in love with these animals. And then once you're fully, then do, do something about it. Listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology at the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash The Primate Cast and on Twitter at The Primate Cast.